wherever you are this morning, whether here in the room or watching online, I bet every one of us has a, a go-to person for different things in our lives. What I mean by that is, um, you know, when your car, when you, it's making that kind of weird clicking sound or there's a light come on that you haven't recognized, uh, you, you call Jim. Jim's your car guy, you know, Jim. Hey, Jim, should I be worried if my car's making this clunking sound? Um, maybe uh, you've got a friend, Sally, and she's a nurse. And Sally's great, because anytime you know, you've got like a bit of an ache or, you know, your heart doesn't seem to be beating right, you're texting Sally like, Sally, should I be worried that my heart just seems to be beating irregularly, you know? And, uh, and to any of you this morning who are in the medical field, doctors, nurses, uh, medical people, uh, I, I think you guys are amazing. Uh, thank you so much for all you do. I recognize that you've probably stood in the cereal aisle of Kroger with a friend who said, I've got this weird rash right here on my chest. Should I be worried about this? You know, I, this is kind of your life. So I realize that could be kind of tricky at times. Um, but imagine having the opportunity to get some advice or some input from some of the people who are the very best in their field. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't it be amazing if you came into some money and you just didn't know what to do with it and you thought, maybe I should invest this. I'm not sure what I should do with this. And, and you're, you've got Uncle Bill who just keeps saying, buy crypto, spend all your money. You know, you're not convinced that Uncle Bill really knows what he's talking about. Um, I think you'd rather speak to someone like maybe Warren Buffett, okay? Warren Buffett, if you've heard of him, he's a very famous uh, investment guy. His net worth is over $95 billion. And I'd say that Warren Buffett would be a very wise person to turn to for advice on investing money. Maybe you find yourself sitting at home thinking, man, this house needs a makeover. You're just sitting there and you're thinking, I, I, I want some new colors. I want to change the layout of the furniture. I want to do something different here. And maybe you're one of those people that if I walked into your house today, there are paint swatches above the light switches. And uh, you've got a Pinterest account where you just keep pinning things like, oh, I like that. I like that. Wouldn't it be awesome if um, you could just ask Chip and Joanna or Erin and Ben Napier? Some of you are like, I have no idea who that is. Your wife does. She knows exactly who they are, okay? Wouldn't it be great if we wanted to remodel our homes to be able to go to experts like this? Or think about sports. If you're working on your basketball game and you really want to kind of improve your basketball game, you really want to get some advice on the best way to get better and I wasn't available, um, whose advice, whose advice would you want I mean, who would be the greatest basketball player that you could imagine to be able to speak to about basketball? Right now, I know you're all thinking of different people, but here in the state of Illinois, uh, we are still required by law to say Michael Jordan. <laughs> Michael Jordan would be the person that you would want to talk to for advice on basketball. You know, 2,000 years ago, there was one person that everyone wanted to hear from. This, this new man, his name was Jesus of Nazareth, showed up. And, and word spread quickly that he was an expert in things of, of God and religion and, and the law of Israel. And, and people were coming from all over because they wanted to hear what he had to say about life and about God and about meaning and purpose. And... We're in a series right now, we're talking about this idea of upside down, because there was a time when Jesus spoke, uh, we, we know of it as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, one of the guys who wrote about the life of Jesus, he gives us these three chapters in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, of Jesus teaching one day to crowds of people, and just incredible teaching, and people wanted to hear what he had to say. 
because everything he was saying was amazing, but what he had to say was just upside down to what they'd heard said before. It was completely different than, than what they were used to hearing the religious leaders speak to up, that, up to that point. You see, the Pharisees, they were concerned primarily with, with external qualities, the way you look and behave on the outside, but, but the qualities that Jesus is talking about are internal. In this, this famous sermon, he talks about a lot of internal and um, heart things. And it was so countercultural that it was blowing people's minds. Because Jesus was talking about this kingdom, the kingdom of God. He was saying, you can be a part of this kingdom. And it wasn't just a kingdom that, that one day in the future when you die, you'd be a part of this kingdom. It was that, but it was also a kingdom that began right here on earth. And he was bringing this kingdom to earth and teaching all about it. Up until this point, there were many who lived in the time of Jesus who felt like they would never qualify to be a part of this kingdom. They would love to, but they felt that, that because they weren't born into the right family, because they weren't religious enough, maybe because they were from the wrong ethnic backgrounds, that their path in life and the choices, maybe the bad choices that they've made, had disqualified them. They felt like they'd, they'd heard talk of this kingdom, but they would never be able to make it to this kingdom. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe this is your first time at Connect or you're, you're newer to Connect. You're watching online and, and you felt like that sometimes. You've heard us talk about what it's like to be a follower of Jesus, to be a, a member at Connect, to be a part of the kingdom of God. And you've thought, well, that's great for them, but that's not for me. And you've disqualified yourself based on some situations in your life, based on some things that you're going through. And you're like, well, well I could never be accepted into a kingdom like that. You may feel like a lot of the people back in Jesus' time felt. They were people of no hope. And yet still had a deep longing inside. A deep longing inside to be set free. To find a place to belong, to be loved and accepted. To be a part of this kingdom. The desire was there, but the religious culture at the time had said, no, this isn't for you. The religious culture of the time, the leaders made it clear that to be a part of this kingdom, it would require a lot of work, a lot of behavior, modification. And basically, even after that, it was still a one in a million chance that you would make it into this kingdom. And then one day, on a mountainside in northern Israel, Jesus turns all of this upside down. And he opens the door of this kingdom to everyone. He makes the invitation to everyone to be a part of this kingdom. And then he goes on to show that all of their preconceived ideas of what it took to be in this kingdom, he was about to turn them completely upside down. His teaching was revolutionary. And as an introduction to this famous Sermon on the Mount that we read about in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he starts out with these, these eight simple ideas. We call them the Beatitudes because each one begins with a blessed are those. And, and he's talking about what it means to be blessed or to be happy or to, to experience God's blessing in your life. These eight simple phrases of what a blessed or happy person would look like in this new kingdom. 
If you weren't here last week, we actually looked at the very first one of these Beatitudes. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We talked about what that means last, last week. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? We talked about the fact that at this point, when Jesus shared this, they were living in a world where these religious superstars paraded around town on the merits of their good deeds. They lauded themselves with pride over those that were lesser than them. And Jesus says, you've got it all upside down. It's not the proud, but the poor in spirit that will be citizens of this new kingdom. And we learned last week that poor in spirit, it doesn't mean beat down and, and dejected and miserable, kind of like Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh, just all the time. That's kind of what I think of when I hear that phrase, poor in spirit, but no. Poor in spirit just means understanding and accepting the place that we all find ourselves. I talked last week about uh, the Chilean mining disaster back in 2010. You might remember this, 33 miners were trapped underground, 2,300 feet beneath the earth's surface. The story of their fate was broadcast around the world because um, no one even knew if they were alive for the first couple of weeks. And when they did discover that they were still alive, it took almost three months to finally rescue them. But that entire time, those miners were trapped underground and there was nothing that they could do to get themselves free. Nothing at all. They were completely relying on people above rescuing them. And we learned that to be poor in spirit means that we understand that sin, the bad things we, we do, that, that it separates us from God. It's like being stuck 2,300 feet underground. We, we're separated by this barrier that sin causes. And there's nothing we can do. We'll never be good enough. We'll never do enough good. We'll never um, not be bad enough to get the distance between us and God. So God, because he loved us so much, he sent his son Jesus to die in our place. And the poor in spirit understand that. The poor in spirit recognize that. The poor in spirit recognize that I, I'll never be good enough. It's only because he rescued me. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. And just when people were starting to comprehend this crazy upside down idea of what it looks like to be poor in spirit, Jesus introduces the second one. And it's just as upside down as the first. Because Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, understand this. Jesus is saying, blessed, happy are those who mourn. People have to be thinking, wait a second, Jesus. Something terrible has just happened in my life. I'm dealing with some grief here. And you're saying that I should consider myself blessed? I should be happy that I find myself in this place? This doesn't make any sense at all. Those who have been attending Connect for a while will know that earlier this year, my dad passed away. And as a family, my wife, my kids, my mom, we went through, my sister, we went through this time of mourning as my dad passed away. But for us, the mourning didn't happen when he died. It actually started about a year before. My dad was diagnosed with cardiovascular dementia. So over the course of a year, we suffered grief and mourning as we watched his, his health, his mental health especially, just decline. As the months went on, this, this great, funny, outspoken, like, great man 
we just saw his personality change. Someone who struggled to remember our names, even who we were towards the end of his life. But I've got to be honest, over this entire year, as we as a family grieved and mourned, friends and family and loved ones support us with the kindest words and the kindest um, offers of prayer and support throughout that time. We felt comfort from people during that time of mourning. I can honestly say that there were numerous things that happened over the course of that year that just showed me that God was walking with me through this difficult, dark time. And I felt his comfort during this time of mourning. I got to experience the truth that in some ways I was, I was blessed as I mourned because of the fact that I felt his comfort. And the truth of us, the truth is that I think many of us have experienced grief or mourning in some kind of way. And while we often think about this in the sense of, of death, the truth is that, that grief, mourning, it, it can happen in numerous different ways. It doesn't just, happen to, just have to be when a loved one passes away. It could be a miscarriage, a separation, a divorce, a move to a new community, living behind friends and family. It could be the loss of a career, a sudden health diagnosis, sending your first kid off to college be a time of mourning, sending your last kid off to college. That's even harder. David Kessler is one of the world's foremost experts on the subject of grief and loss. And he explains that one of the difficulties we encounter with grief and with mourning is that we tend to compare ourselves to others in how we're experiencing the mourning that we're experiencing. Am I mourning the right way? And what he explains is that the way we experience grief, the way we mourn, is as unique as our fingerprint. He spent years helping people from those who are dying to their loved ones, to those who are coping with divorces and breakups, to victims of, of catastrophic events like plane crashes and, and multiple shootings. He said everyone faces grief in different ways. Everyone mourns in different ways. And I love this quote I came across from him this week. He says that whatever our grief is, it's not really about grief, but about change. The changes that we didn't want to happen. And he says that there is a no judgment zone when it comes to grief. Nothing like this grief is worse than that one. Whatever has happened, whatever you are facing, whatever change has thrown your life off the track it was on, that is your grief. So maybe this morning, some of you experiencing this, this blessing are, are, are open to the idea of being blessed as you mourn. And your mourning is about something that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise categorized as mourning. But because of this change that's taken place in your life, you're experiencing a sense of grief, a sense of mourning. And Jesus wants to comfort you in the midst of this. The great thing is, as followers of Jesus, we have this promise that we won't go through this change alone. Whatever the change might be, he is there with us and we will be comforted. Jesus in heaven, who when he walked on the earth, wept at the sight of his dearest friends broken over the death of Lazarus. 
So much so it, it drew him to tears. He understands the pain and the heartache of grief and mourning and change that takes place in our lives. He understands their sorrow and he wants to comfort us. I think on top of that is the idea that many of us struggle with this idea of grief and mourning because we don't want to experience it. We don't want to experience the pain and the sorrow that can come with mourning, whatever brought that mourning on. So for some of us, We'll, we'll just kind of suppress it or we'll try and avoid it. We'll look for ways to ignore it. Al Andrews, a Christian counselor based in Nashville, Tennessee, he talks about handling grief. He has this theory that there is a river of sorrow that flows through all of us deeply. And if we knew how to access it at any moment, we would be sobbing messes. And he's often asked, why do we have to go there? You know it's past, it's done. And he always quotes the Beatitudes. He says, because if you mourn, you will be comforted. And if you don't, you won't be. Some of us try to push this away and we miss the comfort that Jesus wants to bring into our lives. And I think this is such a wonderful promise that in the midst of our mourning, whatever that change might be, whatever causes that grief or that mourning, Jesus wants to be there with us, wants to be there with you this morning. This verse is for you, that you have the experience to be blessed because, not because of the sadness or the pain, but because he is there to comfort you in the midst of it. And while this particular beatitude, I think, can be such a word of comfort to us, especially those of us who have experienced any kind of mourning in our lives, and this idea that God will be there to comfort us through this is, is carried out throughout Scripture, all the way from the Psalms right through to the New Testament. We keep reading about how God is in the midst of our existence when we go through suffering and pain. He is right there with us, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. God promises that He will never leave us or forsake us. While that is true, when we look at the context of what Jesus is saying here, I think there's more to what he is saying about mourning than just the idea of grief. Because you see, in the context here, in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God. He was talking about the kingdom of God as a destination that we all hope one day to find. So, in understanding that the kingdom of God is a place that we want to be, he introduces us to these beatitudes as almost a roadmap. This is how you find your way to the kingdom of God. They, they almost build upon one another. The first thing, the first step in the journey to the kingdom of God is to understand what it means to be poor in spirit. The second step, which builds on the idea of being poor in spirit, is that we also need to mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. There's a translation of the Bible, it's called the Amplified Bible. And if you're not familiar with it, the Amplified Bible, what it does is it, as you read it, it takes um, specific words, nouns, verbs, and uh, rather than just translating it as one specific word, it gives us two or three words to really unpack the meaning. Sometimes when you, when you read a sentence or you read a, um, a verse in the Bible, one word alone just doesn't do justice to the meaning of the word itself. So the Amplified Bible looks at the original Greek language and it gives us multiple words to kind of unpack more of the meaning. And, and I love the way the Amplified Bible translates Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. It said, Blessed 
or forgiven, refreshed by God's grace, that's another way of what blessed means, are those who mourn over their sins and repent, for they will be comforted when the burden of sin is lifted. The Amplified Bible is saying that actually when Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, what he was really saying those who heard him speaking in that day would have understood that, that what he was actually saying was, was blessed are you who mourn over the sins you've committed, over your, your broken state. When you understand what it means to be poor in spirit, you're blessed when you mourn that situation, when you feel sorrow about that situation. You see, last week we learned that the poor in spirit understand their sin has caused this barrier between them and God. This week we discover what it means to fully understand and comprehend that. One is intellectual, the other is emotional. Poor in spirit is intellectual. That's an understanding of the, the predicament we find ourselves in. Mourn is emotional. Poor in spirit is the understanding of the situation. Mourning is responding to that situation. You see, the poor in spirit don't brag about how they've hit the mark. The poor in spirit don't say, yes, I've got it all right. No, the poor in spirit mourn over how they've missed the mark. That's where the mourning comes in, the understanding of not only is this barrier separated me from God, the barrier is there because of things I've done. I've fallen short. I've missed the mark. My life is far from perfect. And Jesus is saying, you are blessed when you fully understand the sin and the wrong things in your life. And it actually moves you to a place of mourning and sorrow as a result. I think the reason that this was probably upside down in Jesus' time and is even more upside down today is, is maybe the way that we think about sin. I know that's kind of an old-fashioned biblical word, and, and what we tend to do is, is kind of rationalize it. A psychiatrist by the name of William Menninger, uh, he wrote a book uh, about this, and he, the title of the book was Whatever Became of Sin. And he explains that that culture prefers words like mistakes, or indiscretions, or lapses in judgment. <laughs> that we tend to think of sin as something that really bad people do. Murderers and terrorists, you know, those are the people who really sin. Me, I, you know, I've, I've made a few mistakes. <laughs> there was a lapse in judgment once. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but compared to some other people who are much worse than me, I'm doing okay. And Jesus in this moment is saying, no, no, no. Blessed are you who mourn. Those who mourn the condition they're in, those who mourn their sin, who understand that what I've done has set me apart from God. But stick with me on this, because Jesus isn't trying to beat us down. Jesus isn't saying, you need to feel bad. You need to understand how bad you are. No, no, no. He's about helping us experience the full blessing of God, the beautiful life, the blessed life that only God himself can bring. And I think we understand that more when we understand the effect that sin has on our lives. And ultimately, who is affected by it most? And King David, in the Old Testament, he gives us a great insight into this. 
Some of you may remember the story of David. It was David who was the young shepherd boy who killed Goliath with his sling and a stone. And um, a great story about, you know, a, a small boy standing up to a giant and defeating him because God was with him. And just a wonderful story. But that little David went, went on to become the king of Israel. He's described as a man after God's own heart because he just loved God so much. Many of the Psalms that we read in the Old Testament are written by David because he just loved to worship God and sing praises to God. But David wasn't perfect. And there's a very famous incident in the life of David where he really messed up. He saw this woman off in the distance. Her name was Bathsheba. And he caught sight of her bathing. And he, he lusted after her. He said, that's who I want. So he had her brought to his palace. And uh, they end up sleeping together. She gets pregnant. Now he feels bad because her husband is off out at war. And uh, he's realizing that, man, I'm going to be in trouble here. So he brings the husband home, hoping that he will sleep with his wife. And then that'll be his responsibility for the baby. But the husband refuses to sleep with the wife. So David, in the end, sends the husband out to battle on the front lines, knowing that this will end up in his death. So he basically sends her husband off to his death. All of this happens and, and David gets away with it. And then years later, he's confronted by a prophet named Nathan and all of his wrongdoing is brought to light and he repents. He mourns the wrong he has done. And in, in true David fashion, he writes a song of confession to God and acknowledges how, how broken he is and how repentant, how sorry he is for just the horrible things he's done. You can read it in Psalm 51, but there's an interesting verse in Psalm 51, verse 4. He says, against you and you alone have I sinned. Which is kind of an odd verse. Against you and you alone have I sinned. Well, what about Bathsheba? What about her husband? There were lots of people here, David, that were affected. And I don't think David is dismissing that. I think he's acknowledging that after all God has done for him, in the midst of his brokenness, in the midst of his, his faults, he's saying, God, it's you who's been affected by this. You see, it's hard to rationalize and justify the wrong things we do when we have a full understanding of how it affects the Father's heart of God, who loves us so much. I was thinking about that idea this week, and it took me back to a a time in my childhood, I was probably about 14 years old. I wasn't a follower of Jesus at the time, and uh, maybe 14 or 15. Something had happened. I, to this day, I still can't remember exactly what had happened, but I had plans that night to go to a friend's house. We were going to uh, have a bunch of people over, have some fun together. And um, I, maybe it was a bad report at school. Something happened, but I got home, and my parents said, you are not going out tonight. Because of what happened, you are staying home tonight. I was so mad. It's like, they can't tell me what to do. I'm not proud of this, but being the punk kid that I was, I went up to my bedroom, and unbeknownst to them, I climbed out of my bedroom window, ran down the street, found my friends, said, we're going anyway. We went out, had fun at their house that night. I found another friend who said he could, I could sleep at his house that night, so I slept the night at his house. Like, and this is like, <laughs> I was 14, so like at least 10, 15 years ago. This was... Uh, <laughs> Maybe a little bit longer than that. This was before cell phones, no find my iPhone, you know, no way of calling me. Or So the early hours of the next morning, my friend's mum <laughs> comes and wakes us up. She goes, you need to call home. Your mum and dad have been calling all these parents trying to figure out where you are. You're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and I was. <laughs> so early in the morning, I, my friend's mum took me home. 
And I walked in through the front door. And I remember thinking, I'm going to be in so much trouble. My dad is going to be so mad, so angry at what I did. And then this thing happened. I walked into a hall just right there, and there was my mom and dad. And as I walked in, my dad just burst into tears. I'd never seen my dad cry before. It was the strangest thing just in that moment. I think I'd rather he'd be mad at me. Because in that moment, I saw what my indiscretion, what, my, what, what it had done to him. And now, 30, 40 years later, as a father myself, I understand how that must have felt for my dad, not knowing where I was. Of course he was angry at what I did. But I realized in that moment how much I hurt him, how much my bad act had affected him. And I think that's why David says, it is against you and you alone have I sinned. Because he understood how much God loves us. What a great father he is to all of us. And yes, when we do things wrong, it affects other people. But it affects the father's heart as well. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn and get that and understand that and realize that. Because when you understand the consequences of your wrongdoings and you mourn as a result, you will be comforted. This is what the Amplified Version says. You will be comforted when the burden of sin is lifted. That's the comfort that Jesus wants us all to experience. The mourning is a journey to bring us to the comfort. It's not a place to bring us to guilt and condemnation. Jesus is saying, when you fully understand the, the separation, the brokenness that you're in, and don't try and justify it or, or somehow say it was just a lapse. You know, when we acknowledge who we are, and here's the great thing, John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, he got this, he understood this. He spent enough time with Jesus that he understood the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. And he said in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, purify us from all unrighteousness. He wants to do that for all of us here this morning. Those who mourn find a God who says, let that go. It was wrong, but it's okay now. I forgive you. They find a God who forgives and comforts and releases us from the burden of those sins. And that's what it's like to be blessed. It's a beautiful thing to understand the blessing, the happiness that comes when we realize, yes, I'm a mess, but man, God still loves me anyway. God wants to forgive me. In December of 2013, a newspaper in Detroit carried a story of an encounter that took place between a pastor who was a former drug addict and a 91-year-old federal judge. It was Christmas and Ray Anderson, this, this pastor, had scheduled a meeting with this 91-year-old judge in his quarters. The reason for the meeting the reason was that 33 years earlier, this particular guy had broken into the judge's home. He'd got to his basement, stolen TVs, jewelry, and a watch that he remembered was inscribed on the back to commemorate the judge's graduation from Howard Law School. This guy ran, and he was actually friends with the judge's daughter, so he'd been to this house several times before. 
But his addiction to cocaine had driven him to, to a life of crime to support this particular habit. And having been at the house, he kind of cased the place and figured out how he could get in. He figured out where the, the valuable stuff was. He figured out there was a lot of stuff there that he could easily get away with that he could pawn for cash to support his drug habit. And he did. He was never caught. And over the following years, he actually turned his life around. Following an unsuccessful suicide attempt, he became a follower of Jesus himself. But he never forgot that watch and how bad he felt. Because he knew it must have had sentimental value to his friend's dad, to this particular judge. So 33 years after stealing it, he found himself in the judge's chamber. And he explained to this 91-year-old judge, it was me that broke into your house. Judge Keith says, I remember that day now. He said, the police called me and said someone had broken into my home. He said, at the time, I remember feeling mostly concerned for my wife and children. Anderson said, I'm sorry. I asked the Lord to please give me the opportunity to seek your forgiveness. And that is why I'm here today. And the newspaper story says that the elderly judge leaned back and he smiled. He says, you were forgiven before you ever came in. I'd made a decision years ago to forgive whoever it was that had broken into my home. Anderson offered to replace the watch. He said, let me at least replace the watch. But the judge said, I don't even remember now what the inscription said. Anderson was disappointed that he wouldn't be able to make amends, but the judge added, listen, it doesn't matter. It's amazing that you would come to tell me this after all this time. This is the Christmas season. There's no way I would ever hold anything against you. I feel as if something has been lifted off of me as well, because all these years, that was the only time we've ever been robbed, and I always wondered why. The judge stood up. He said, you've done something for me, Ray. You've made my life better. You made my day. You know, it's good to mourn over our sins, to understand our brokenness, the things we've done wrong. It's good to mourn and to repent. But thanks to Jesus, we don't need to stay there. Because in the words of that judge, you were forgiven before you ever came in. Wherever you find yourself this morning, whatever you've done, you were forgiven before you ever came in because Jesus has already made a way. The rescue attempt is complete. We were trapped, but God sent Jesus to die for us. And you were forgiven before you ever turned to him. And now this morning, you can come and say, God, I recognize where I'm at. I mourn. I'm sorry for what I've done. But thank you that you are willing to forgive. Because when I mourn, I will be comforted as the burden of those wrong things are lifted. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. And as we look a little bit deeper into what you taught that day, Jesus, it becomes clearer to us that you were, you were building a, a roadmap, a journey that will take us ultimately to the kingdom of God. And it was upside down to what people understood in that time. In that time, there were people who thought, I could never find my way to the kingdom of God because I'll never be good enough. I'm not like those religious leaders who have figured it all out, but Jesus, you said, no, you've got it wrong. 
You're right, you will never be good enough. But when you understand that, when you recognize that you are poor in spirit, when you emotionally accept the fact and you mourn over the fact that you found yourself in this place, you will be comforted. You will be forgiven. And 2,000 years later, we can still experience that same comfort, that same release of the burden of sin in our lives if we'll come to you, if we'll turn to you. Thank you, Lord, for your love and your forgiveness. In Jesus' name.